I guess this is it. Seven days ago, you said the flood would begin. Seven days ago. For a hundred years, my family and I have been laboring on this boat, day in and day out, and we're so tired. Not just from the physical labor, but from enduring the jeering and the scoffing of those who doubt you. God, I've, I've tried to warn them. I've gone into the cities and I've preached the coming destruction, but no one has listened. They keep telling me the world would just go on as it is forever, but you told me you have other plans. Your heart is grieved by the evil that's everywhere out there, and, and I believe that you will do what you say. But I have to say, I have mixed emotions today. After so long a wait, my soul will find relief in the sound of the waters. But I know what it means for everyone outside the ark. And now my heart is grieved. One week ago, you said that you would bring the waters, Father. So where are they? I trust you. I know that you're true to your word. What is that sound I hear? I've never heard that before, but it must be the rain that you promised would come. Do with us as you will, God. I trust you. Great are you, Lord. How far we have fallen from Eden in just the first six pages of our Bibles. As Joe explained so well last week, approximately 1,700 years have passed since the garden was closed from us and Eden was lost. Noah and his family have spent the last hundred years building this large wooden vessel, the ark, doing everything as the Lord commanded him. He did this in spite of the fact that the world had never flooded before. In fact, many Old Testament theologians agree that the world had never even seen rain. Up until this time, the world was watered by water seeping up from the ground or from a, a mist-like wet fog in the mornings. And of course, this didn't provide an incredible amount of moisture. Chapter 3 indicates that through to painful toil, man would eat food now from cursed ground that produced thistles and thorns. Again, man and earth have fallen a long way from the days of the garden. The world is full of evil, sin, and debauchery. Violence is everywhere. And the Lord has looked around, and he has seen only evil, except in one man, Noah. And with the stage now set, we read in chapter 7. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family, for among all the people of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and a female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth. And it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood. He and his wife and his sons and their wives with them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice, and those that were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. And the rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two, they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on earth, rising more than 22 feet above the peaks. All these things, living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground and the birds of the sky. All, all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> it's my first preach as an elder here at Westside, and the topic that I am given is final destruction. <laughs> In fairness, I have to tell you, he gave me a way out. He said I could preach on whatever I wanted, whatever the Lord put on my heart, and I really did try to avoid this. <laughs> for, for weeks, I wrestled with alternatives, but for whatever reason, the Lord kept drawing me back to this topic, and I began to dig into it. And I have to say now, I'm strangely excited. I know that may sound strange to you, but I hope that in the next 40 minutes, <clears throat> to help you also get excited about what we learned from the flood and from the ark. It's important to know that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And in these first seven chapters, God has clearly introduced us to the problems of sin and evil. God hates evil. He hates it so much that he didn't want us to have an awareness of it at all. But an awareness of sin entered the human experience when forbidden fruit from a tree was eaten, a tree which contained the knowledge of good and evil. This knowledge was never intended for man to have. I find it interesting that the serpent didn't actually lie in this, didn't fully lie. 
What he said was more of a half-truth. Hear me out. He told them that having eaten the fruit, they would be like God. And at least in the aspect of knowing the difference between good and evil, we developed an awareness that we were never meant to have. An awareness that up until that moment, only God and the angels had. God's intention was that we would have lived in simplicity and in trust and in innocence in the garden. Imagine a small, small infant before they utter their first no. Before they look at you with that devilish little look in their face and they do exactly what you told them not to do. It was in that childlike state of total trust and innocence that Adam and Eve originally lived in the garden and walked with God. So here, though, by the end of chapter 3, God has already introduced us to the singular problem in the world, sin and evil. In chapter 6 and 7, he is now introducing the solution, salvation. And this brings us to the central question of the entire Bible. How can God destroy evil and yet save sinful man? Hallelujah, there is an answer to that question And the answer is that God saves by grace, through faith, in Christ. Let's break these apart, look at them one at a time. First, God saves by grace. In Genesis 6, verse 7, God said, I regret having made man. As Joe explained last week, this has a lot more similarity to feeling deep sorrow for the choices of man than actually expressing that God felt that he had made a mistake. God looked around and he saw nothing but evil and violence and destruction. And so this was his resulting state of emotion. Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this word favor can be defined as grace and kindness. And I think it's normal for us to ask here, why is grace even necessary? And the answer is because judgment is real. No one likes judgment, especially final judgment. And if we look at chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, we need to be careful with the tone that we use for God's voice when we read these words. These words should be read with a sorrowful and a compassionate tone, not an angry and vengeful tone, but rather one that acknowledges how precious mankind is and how horrible evil is. In these verses, God says, I must destroy evil this pervasive evil that is everywhere, and I will, but I love you, and I don't want to destroy you, and so this is how to be saved. I will provide a way of escape. By approximately page five of our Bibles, very, very early in the history of mankind, God has now laid out the beginning and the end, creation and judgment. And what we believe about these two things is absolutely critical to our final destination. See, our beliefs are like a rudder that directs us through life. This could be broken down into fundamentally two different worldviews. I was driving home from Costco with Monica Monday, praying about this message, and I was literally contemplating this point, how to best describe these two worldviews. And I kid you not, within seconds of praying and talking to God about it, I saw the following bumper sticker. I used to think this said hecky. (laughs) What does it say? He is greater than I with a small I. In this worldview, the focus is on God 
as the center of all things, the creator of all things. And a person who believes this is led to make these kinds of statements. God gave me life, and life is eternal no matter what. Nothing is hidden from God. He sees me and he knows me. At death, I will face him and I will be judged by him. I must live my life with the end in mind and I must live by God's playbook. I smiled. God seemed to have brought that bumper sticker exactly when I asked. And I thought, Lord, is there an opposing sticker? And I'm not kidding. I hadn't even made it from Costco over the first grade. And the next car that pulls up has this little oval, and it says this. Now, I've never seen that consciously before. I have no idea what it is except an old album. But um, <laughs> some of you get what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, I can only imagine God intended for me to have it and to see it because I was supposed to share it with you today. Otherwise, I really have no idea why that would have struck me. It's only this big, and it was on their bumper. <clears throat> but I asked Monica to look it up, and here's what she found. Angel number 2112, meaning trusting in the universe. Angel number 2112 wants you to remember that your soul destiny is unique to you and it is important that you accomplish it. This alternative worldview would state that we or I am the center of all things. Now, if a person believes this, they are led to make these types of statements. I am a genetic accident. Life is all about my happiness and my personal fulfillment, my soul destiny. My, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. There is no universal truth. When I die, one of two things may happen. Either I just will cease to exist or if there's a God or a universal power, he or it will just affirm and accept everyone in all of their choices. And so Jesus is okay for you. While things like fame or power, wealth, inner peace or pleasure, these things are okay for me. And in the end, we're all going to be okay. Just play by your own playbook. The truth is that these two worldviews cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. If one of them is true, then the other one is false. Without a rudder, we drift about. We eventually drift into the rocks. People just innately know this, and so they grasp for a worldview. The one that we choose determines our eternal destiny. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we've been introduced to creation, we've been introduced to the curse, we've been introduced to destruction, and now in chapters 6 and 7, in the ark, we are introduced to salvation. Salvation by grace is a foreshadowing of God's ultimate plan. He will save us by showing us undeserved favor and kindness. God provided Noah with a way out of the world-wrecking flood of decreation. The ark was a vehicle designed by God and shared with Noah by grace. So God saves by loving grace. But how does he do this? What mechanism makes a doorway for sinful man to live forever with a holy God. God made a way for Noah and his family to be saved by grace through faith. So God saves through faith, point two. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. 
This faith or belief or trust is defined in the New Testament book of Hebrews, written nearly 2,400 years after Noah lived. It's often referred to in the, as the Hall of Fame of Faith. Chapter 11 tells us, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. Now think of this biblical, biblical definition of faith, and now think of Noah. He is hoping in confidence for God to save him through the ark. Through that confident hope, he is certain that the floods will come soon, and the rain will indeed fall, even if it is for the first time in history. Noah had faith, and Noah had obedience. This faithful obedience is the thing which allowed God to find favor in Noah. Verses 6 and 7 go on to say in Hebrews 11, Without faith, it's impossible to walk with God and please him. For whoever comes near to God must necessarily believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly and diligently seek him. By faith, with confidence in God and his word, Noah, being warned, about the flood, um, warned by God about events not yet seen, in reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of his family. And by this act of obedience, he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. So, it's our faith that makes us righteous? Yes, not a trick question. When Paul writes in the book of Romans that no one is righteous, he means that no one is righteous on their own based on their own deeds. Genesis 15.6 says, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. The Amplified Version helps us flesh out the meaning a little bit. It says that Abra then Abram believed in, he affirmed, he trusted in, he relied on, he remained steadfast to the Lord, and he counted or credited it to him as righteousness, which is doing right in regard to God and man. So this term credited, credited to, is similar to an exchange of two things in an account. So here... Very few people seem to use cash much anymore in this day and age of digital money. Uh, gold, shiny shells became gold. Gold became coins. Coins became cash. Cash became checks. Checks became credit cards. Credit cards became Apple Wallet. Apple Wallet became <laughs> Bitcoin or something now. I don't even, do, doji, whatever. I don't know. Anyway, some of you young ones may not be aware that actual paper money, it was once everywhere. And just after high school, I traveled to Yugoslavia, not in a boat. There were planes back then, and I <laughs> flew to Yugoslavia. I arrived there with these dollars in my pocket. And in order to purchase things in that country, I had to exchange my dollars for their currency, which was dinar. So I gave them dollars, and they gave me dinar. I went to the bank. I took one form of currency, I gave it to the bank. They handed me another form of currency in exchange, right? In this same way... God is exchanging faith for righteousness. Now, God owns the bank. It's his right to determine what things have what value in this world. And God has determined that faith can be exchanged for righteousness. Hallelujah. Yes. So we are saved by grace through faith. 
Ephesians 2 verse 8 told us this, but verse 9 is really critically important for us to understand. Salvation is a gift of God, yes. It is a, not a result of your works, nor of your attempts to keep the law, so that no one will be able to boast or to take credit in any way for his salvation. Here, let us not forget the words of Jesus' half-brother, James. In chapter 2, verse 14, 12 through, 14 through 24, James reminds us, he says, What benefit, my fellow believers, if someone claims to have faith but has no good works as evidence? Can that kind of faith save him? No. A mere claim of faith is not sufficient, genuine faith produces good works. According to James, actions matter. Words, not so much. The demons have a type of faith. They believe that God, Jesus exists and that he's real and that he's the son of God, but they shudder in this knowledge. And the demons, of course, are not saved. It's interesting to note here that Noah is never recorded to have spoken. Genesis 6.22, Genesis 7.5, Genesis 7.9, and Genesis 7.16, all these verses say, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It wasn't his words expressing his faith that caused God to credit him as righteous. It was his actions expressing his faith. One of my daughters was notorious for always saying, yes, mom, or yes, dad, whenever we'd ask her to do something, and with a smile on her face, she would say that, and then she'd skip away and do whatever the heck she wanted. <clears throat> this is not what God had in mind here when he says in the book of John, chapters 14 through 15, if you really love me, you will keep and obey my commandments. Verse 21 goes on to say, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones that love me. And because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. We are saved by grace through faith and take a special note here that if you really believe God and you believe in a God-centered worldview, then your decisions will guide your priorities and the direction and the actions of your life. They will be your rudder. Building the ark was an act of faith. It was evidence of Noah's faith. He didn't simply believe that God had actually said, I'm going to flood the earth and all the living things that have breath in their nostrils and you will die unless you're in the ark. He actually believed that God would do what he said because... For nearly a hundred years, he obeyed what he was commanded to do by doing what? Continuing to build the ark. The reason this is so critical for us all to understand is because another judgment is coming. Another judgment that's in some way similar to the flood. Chapter 24 in the book of Matthew dives into this in detail in the words of Jesus himself. Catch this. He references Noah's day. Again, this book written nearly 2,400 years later, Matthew 24, verses 35 through 44, Jesus says, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son himself. Only the Father knows. 
When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And that's the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. And so you too must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. This is still Jesus talking. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So we must be ready as Noah was. Noah had to build the ark. It was an act of faith. And he and his family had to enter the ark, an act of faith. Noah alone was found righteous in that day. He had faith, he heard, he believed, and he obeyed the words of God. He did all that God had commanded him, and he even tried to save others. 2 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 5 says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So, okay, he spoke, but he's not speaking here. It just says he preached. He tried to tell those people that he came into contact with about the coming judgment, but no one responded. One can only imagine how scoffers must have ridiculed and harassed Noah and his family for days, uh, no, for weeks, no, for how many years? For a hundred years. Imagine a hundred years of building what was undoubtedly the largest structure on earth. A boat, no less than miles and miles and miles from the sea. A boat to save mankind from rain, which had never happened before. To save them from a flood, which had never happened before. Of course there were doubters. And some of those doubters laughed and scoffed at Noah and his family. Is today any different? Jesus has told us there's a coming day of destruction and judgment. Peter later writes about this in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. Peter says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From the time before our, our, our ancestors, everything's remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And then he brought the earth out from the water, and then he surrounded it with water. And then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. <sighs> stored up for fire. Whether this fire is metaphorical or literal, we can trust God when he says that a future destruction is coming. But in the midst of this horrible and real expectation, there is incredible news for everyone. God has provided a way out. 
2 Peter 2, verse 5, and God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment, so God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. And verse 9 continues, so you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. There is a way out a way to be rescued from the coming judgment. The ark was the first way to be saved. It was the vessel that lifted or raised Noah and his family above the flood waters to salvation. Jesus Christ is our ark. He is our anointed redeemer king. He is the ark of and for every generation since Noah. He is the vessel that will lift or raise us above the coming destruction to salvation. Yes, God saves by grace, through faith, in Christ. God saves in Christ. This is the major point of the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. The Bible is not simply a history book. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 say, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. It's critical that we see the Bible as a unified story It is always pointing to Christ in both the Old Testament and the New. The ark is not just a fact of history. It is also one that is a beautiful picture of our Savior. Noah and his family were saved from the flood in the ark, just as we and our family of believers can be saved from final destruction in Christ. In Noah, God judged the world and he saved one man. In Christ, God judged one man and he saved the world. This is getting exciting. We should see this picture right now in our heads. Noah in the ark, believing God. Us in Christ, believing God. We should understand these ancient truths. All those in the ark were saved. None were cast out. All those outside the ark were lost. As God spoke to Noah and through Noah at a time when people were busy pursuing pleasure, comfort, power, gain, position, he speaks to us today. There's nothing new under the sun. We are just like those in the day of Noah. We have knowledge of good and evil. We are outside the garden and there is a judgment day coming. But we should understand these present and future truths, all those, all those in Christ will be saved. All those outside of Christ will be lost. And at this point, let me just pause a moment and strongly suggest that the Lord may already be speaking to some of you through his Holy Spirit. He may be asking some of you to come to him, to declare faith in him, and to live in faithful obedience. 
You may have heard him in the past. You may have heard him or felt him this morning, even drawing you to church. He may even be, you may be hearing right now his holy whispers. What kinds of whispers, you ask? Well, he may be saying, I love you. I created you. I know you. I want you as my child. I am the way and the truth and the life. Come to me. Get right with me. Respond to my voice. I will be your way out of this corrupt life and evil world and existence, and I will save you. And I will lead you into an eternal world of beauty and justice and joy and peace. And I will be with you forever. Don't be freaked out if you're hearing these holy whispers. It's actually not unusual for those that God is pursuing or those with whom he already has a relationship to hear or sense such things. Many, many of us in this room have experienced exactly this. Would you be so bold as to raise your hand? You've heard this You've heard this. <clears throat> and, you've, and we've been led to enter into a life destiny altering relationship with Christ, right, church? So if you are hearing such things as I mentioned here, I can tell you with certainty, God is calling you. He is wooing you. He is drawing you to himself. Later this morning, you may have an opportunity to respond. Working in harmony with the Holy Spirit, let me share a few words of Jesus with you as recorded in John 10, 7 through 9, the beginning. Jesus said, I assure you, and I most solemnly say to you, I am the door for the sheep leading to life. All who came before me as false messiahs and self-appointed leaders are thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not hear them. I'm the door, and anyone who enters through me will be saved and live forever. Do not be misinformed about this door. Many will tell you that all paths lead to God. This is a common belief in our day and age. And while there may be numerous paths and more than one door or gate, Jesus tells the truth about this important detail. His own words are recorded by the apostle Matthew in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, when he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad and easy to travel is the path that leads to destruction and eternal loss. And there are many who enter through it. Small is the gate, and narrow and difficult to travel is the path that leads the way to everlasting life. And there are few who find it. Jesus Christ is the anointed Redeemer King, and he is the narrow door. The only way of salvation in his own words what amazing news, this salvation in Christ. However, as important as it is for you and the whole world to know this news, and for me, for all of us to know this good news, this amazing news, it's also critically important to understand this. The door to this offer of salvation, it will not remain open forever. Just as Noah's ark's door was closed, so too will the door to salvation in Jesus Christ close one day. Who will close the door, you ask? God will. The Bible records this historical fact. Genesis 7, Noah and his family and all the animals have entered the ark. And then in verse 16, end of it, it says, then the Lord closed the door behind them. Yes, God himself closed the door. It wasn't Noah's decision to make. The timing of this was up to God. God decided that the door would close and then God closed it himself. So, Jesus has now told us that there's a narrow way that leads to salvation from destruction. Or, and John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way. 
I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And in 14.9, he says that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Yes, he said he was God. The God. Capital G God. And let me note here that we should be very, very careful not to just call Jesus simply a good example. Or a good teacher. Or one just worthy of emulating the way he walked through this world. I grew up going to church, and that was my thought. He's a good guy, and I, I, what I heard in church growing up is I just had to try to be like him, and that was it. That was the, that's, that's how you become a Christian. This is not true. Many of you may be familiar with the idea first expressed by C.S. Lewis, and it was adapted later by Josh McDowell in Evidence That Demands a Verdict. If you're wrestling with whether or not to become a Christian, it's a great book to read. He came up with this idea of liar, lunatic, or lord. And it's a premise that Jesus Christ must be Lord. One cannot argue that he's simply a good teacher. Jesus said that he's God. And so Jesus is either one, a crazy and deranged man, thinking that he's God when he's really not, or two, he's a liar, trying to deceive us into thinking that he's God when he's really not, or three, he's genuinely Lord. There is no other option. You cannot simply look at him like a good example because a good example wouldn't be a crazy, deranged person or a liar. And so you must consider that he is who he said he was, the anointed redeemer king, the one God spoke of in Genesis, the offspring of Adam who would have enmity with the serpent, but who would one day crush his head even as his heel was bitten. Jesus is the way, the only way to salvation from the coming destruction. Noah was saved by entering the ark. He and his family escaped the flood. The door is now open for this final ark. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed Redeemer King. Many of us in this room have already stepped in. We are in Christ. We are saved already. The question is, where are you? And this is not a question to be taken lightly. This is the most important question of your life. And it's possible that some are hearing my voice right now, either online or outside or in here, and you're outside of the ark, believing that the flood will never come. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 speaks of this end, when it says God will provide rest for those of you who are being persecuted, and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Judgment will come. It's a reality. It's also impossible that some that are hearing my voice right now are also outside the ark, but taking swimming lessons or otherwise exercising their muscles, believing that somehow they can avoid this final judgment by simply working and trying to be a good enough person without completely trusting in Jesus for their salvation. As it is written, there is none righteous, not one, Romans 3.10. And Isaiah 64.6, we have all become like one who is ceremonially unclean, like a leper, and all of our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. We wither and we decay like a leaf, and our wickedness, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, like the wind takes us away, carrying us far from God's favor towards destruction. You cannot be strong enough or good enough to earn your way into God's kingdom.
Friends, listen carefully to this one. This is a dangerous deception. It's possible that some that are hearing my voice right now know that the ark is important. And they want to enter it. They may even think they're in it. And yet, they're busy gathering lumber and nails and tools and supplies and thinking that they must help finish building the ark. As they try to emulate Jesus and work hard to become more like him, recognizing him only as a good person. Matthew 7, 22 and 23 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. None of these strategies will work, according to the Bible. The wonderful news is that many of you hearing my voice are already inside the ark secure and resting in Jesus's finished work. You are fully trusting in Christ as the ark built for you and exchanged with you for your faith. And the anointed redeemer king has welcomed you inside safe from the coming destruction. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his work of art, another translation says, his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Where you are matters in regards to Christ and the ark. Remember, you must be in Christ to be saved from the coming destruction. Being in church is not the same thing. And the reason that I'm sharing this, and probably the reason I wrote half of this, is because at 23, I was sitting in a pew like this one. I just heard a preacher speak this powerful message that tied the Old Testament to the New Testament, and he just showed me where Jesus was in the Old Testament, and then he called for a decision. And I had gone to church since birth, literally. I had never understood the need for a decision the day of planting my flag of faith in the sand, so to speak. And God whispered to me powerfully that day. And in my response of accepting him and entering into a relationship with him, it changed the course of my life and my eternal destiny. You see, sitting in church all my life had not made me a Christian any more than if I had spent all those Sundays sitting in my garage would have made me a car. Our faith allows us to enter the ark. Here's where, again, where I was at 23. Some may think you need perfect faith to enter the ark or to accept Christ. And this was me in college. Mark 9 is my all-time favorite passage in scripture because it spoke so powerfully to me and still does. A father came to Jesus with his son who had seizures. And the father said, Lord, I, I came to your apostles and, and asked them to, to heal and they couldn't. And he said, well, this kind of demon is only taken care of by prayer and fasting. And he says, well, well Jesus, if you can, please heal him. And I don't, I don't know what facial expression Jesus made here. I always wonder at his face and his tone. But he looked at the Father and he said, if I can, all things are possible for him who believes. And the Father said, I do believe Help me in my unbelief. And then Jesus walked away and said, sorry, dude. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't. 
He healed his son. My goodness, that's so powerful to me because what it's telling me is God will meet you where you are. If you're willing to say, I do believe, help me with my unbelief, he'll help you work out the Red Sea parting. He'll help you work out immaculate conception. He'll help you understand which kinds of things you need to wrestle with and which ones you just need to let go of. I love the fact that Jesus met this man where he was. He accepted his faith, even though the man confessed to having some doubts. Can I be so bold as to suggest that God is willing to do the same thing for you? He'll meet you where you are. Do you hear him whispering to you to come? You have a ticket. As corny as it may seem, you know, I thought, if nothing else, this is a great bookmark for you for your Bibles. It's also a great thing for you to share with some of your friends that maybe are not across the line of faith. They haven't entered the ark yet. You can say this goofy pastor preached on this thing and he gave me this ticket. Isn't that hilarious? And then you can talk about it because there's verses on it. And I love the fact that it says admit one before it's too late. <laughs> but I also love that it fa- says Second Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. He doesn't want anyone to perish and that all should respond and reach repentance. So you have a ticket. Is today the day you enter the ark? Remember, God wants everyone, and you can come to him today if you haven't already. How? By grace, through faith, in Christ. Will you stand with us? Thank you, Ty. We're going to take some time to respond as the musicians come up. They're going to be playing one last song. Before we go into this, I'm going to ask you to do something that I always hated, the preacher asking me to do, is that if you would just close your eyes for a moment, lest this be a moment between you and God. I want to highlight in on that question, where are you? There's only two places you can be. You can either be alive in Christ or you can be dead in your sins. There's no other options in life. I think a lot of us would like to rest in the idea that there are other options or we can make this decision later or I'm still working through it or there's still things I need to chew on or still things I don't quite understand and those things will always be there. One of the key points that time made is that it's through faith that you enter the ark. It's through faith that you accept what God has done in your life. We've had people in this church in their 70s finally come to Christ, going to church their whole lives thinking they were thinking they were saved, but they'd never truly put their faith in Jesus. I would like to invite you in this moment, if this is you, no matter what age, no matter what place, where you are, if you know that you've never truly given your heart over to him, that you've rested in your own talents, your own abilities, your disbelief, today is your day. Today is your day to accept what Jesus has done for you, to accept that Jesus came to this world for you, that he entered Jerusalem knowing he was headed towards his death, that he antagonized the religious leaders knowing they would put him on that cross, and he spoke the kingdom for you. 
He proclaimed life for you. And he walked up to the top of that hill and he let them put nails through his hands and his feet and he bled and he died for you to cover every sin that you've ever committed, everything you've ever done, every thought and every deed, he died so that it might be covered, that the sacrifice would be made for you. So I'd like to invite you today, if you've never turned your life over to Christ, you can just agree with this prayer. Lord, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you that you died for me. And I believe that you did this. I believe that you are Lord. And I believe that your way is the way. I don't understand everything, God. And I probably never will. But I accept that you do. And I'm going to turn from my ways. I repent of my sins. I acknowledge that I am not perfect that I am not God and that you are and that I will follow you to the end of my days. And if you believe this in your heart and you confess this with your mouth, then you are saved. Then you are in the ark. You are a child of God. We're going to celebrate communion together in a moment. This is recognizing and remembering that Jesus did this for us, thanking him for this glorious moment that all of Scripture points to. Lord, thank you. The cracker representing his body that was brutally beaten for us. The juice representing his blood that was spilled for us. We say, Lord, thank you. Thank you what you've done for me.